Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Podcast and welcome to another episode with a guest. And today is Kapil Sesasai. Yep. Yay! <laughs> we did it. Um, I, I was just saying to Kapil before we started there, I, um, I, I'm used to my name being mis- mispronounced, so I always feel guilty when I mispronounce um, other people's names. But oh, thank I do you all so the time. much. Um, so you have, um, we'll come to your album, your new album soon that's been yeah, recently released, uh-huh. but you've picked six songs for us. Yeah. Uh-huh. And we're going to have a chat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sounds great. So um, first of all, uh, I guess what I want to know is what was the first, what was your first entry into music or your first musical memory? My first musical memory is I grew up in a family with loads of classical musicians in it and my cousins are classical singers. and. They're just older than me. They're older than me enough that when I was a toddler, they were like 10, 11. And my earliest memories hearing them kind of vocal, do their vocal exercises in the other room when I was sleeping and watching them do 
gigs in like Hindu temples and watching them play music along with the harmonium and stuff like it really I don't know it really resonated with me even from a young age like I didn't know what they were doing but I really liked it and I think that's always been swirling around in my head somewhere mm-hmm. so I suppose yeah listening to my cousins play music was the earliest memory there's this they still play which is really nice and you have um your uh the the album obviously that you've just recently released how many records have you put out now uh two eps a standalone single and this record yeah and i had three singles yeah so the album is in terms of production values it's it's phenomenal i'm so i'm so proud of the production of it just because um, the guy I work with, Stuart McLachlan, he plays in Britney. I mean, he's the vocalist from Britney and he yeah. does like he needs in half form things and things as well. But yeah, we collaborated really closely on this and he, he couldn't have done like a better job. I asked him initially because um, the guitar tone on all the Britney records is incredible. And like uh, that made me want to work with him. But we have such a shared taste in terms of music that he likes all the random tangents. I know he likes loads of things that go off a random tangents just like me. So to have collaborated this closely and it was really great and he did and he couldn't have done a better job, I yeah. think. You've got many strings to your bow, um, but I, I do want to talk a, a bit about the album. Yeah, yeah, um, the, um, yeah. The thing I love about the album is that there's, there's so many kind of melodious passages through it, but it takes you in directions that you just are not expecting at all. And I love the kind of contradictions in the songwriting and the delivery of it. Mm-hmm. Um, the What was your approach to your songwriting? I approached the album like I was writing an essay and each song was a chapter and I wanted to structure it so that each chapter was like a, was like a narrative on the different guises that oppression based on cast can take. So it was really easy in the sense that the narrative really drove what the songs were gonna be about and what I'd be writing about. When it came to the melodies, it got more complicated. It was I mean, I was listening to loads and loads of new things when I was writing this record. But in terms of the narrative of the record, it was very much thinking about it like an essay. Like, the first song on the record is like the title track. And the title track, I would think of as like an abstract for the essay. Like, it's kind of telling you what the album's about. It's telling you what my position in the cast system is. It's a, it's a strange position to write from because my family are upper caste and we don't face any caste depression ourselves. I'm kind of singing about... So, so see, for, I want to kind of make sure that we pe- people that are listening understand yeah, 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 what sure. you mean by that. Uh-huh. Essentially, the Indian caste system is like, it's like a very antiquated class system based on Hindu scripture. And essentially the way it works is... You, there's just like in the West, there are upper class people, there are middle class people, there are lower class people, and below the class system itself, there's this tier called the untouchables who are deemed to be so impure and so lowly, shall we say, that they're not even allowed to be in the system. And the way it works is, is that you're only really allowed to fraternize with people at your level, and that you're only allowed to marry people at your level, and you're only allowed to, and there are only certain professions that each level can be able to do because the way it works is, is in the hindu holy book it talks about how each tier in the class system has a set has a set set of um jobs and like attributes that they can do like for example the cast i'm from we're near the top and we're thought of as like priests all the you know you know like taking care of temples reading scripture delivering scripture that's what my caste would have done in ancient Hindu society. But the unfortunate thing is, is that society has moved on for thousands of years and that a lot of these discriminations don't make any sense and a lot of these jobs don't make it, the jobs adhered to by caste don't make any sense anymore. But the problem is, is that modern India and Indian communities in diaspora are so, are so entrenched in these really antiquated ways of thinking and these really antiquated class tiers that you've now got modern situations in which contemporary like people can't get jobs outside i can't they can't have ideas above their station if you want if you're of a certain caste you can't get that job you can't there's no class mobility if you fall in love with somebody who's not the same caste as you you can't be with them unless your family won't unless your family wants to break caste too and that never happens and it gets even more violent than that and i talk about this on the album a lot is this that caste caste is often thought of as this really bygone thing from like a country no one's ever heard of but it's so real and it's so visible and it's so active in the west today that you know 
there's the second song in the album is about honor killings and people think that when i'm referring to the honor killings i'm referring to ones from like hundreds of years ago but a lot of the cases i make reference to have happened in the last 20 years yeah and a lot of them have happened in the west as well like there's a specific murder that really really shook me reading about it and it was about a canadian woman who like met someone in india who was sikh as well as she was sikh but he was of a different caste to her and her family were so angry at her disobeying that that they murdered her her own family murdered her over who she chose to fall in love with and it really shook me reading that and that really drove me to want to put that out to bring this album out and to really like you know try and send this message out as far as i can just to send the you know just to raise awareness of the cause i guess and and what you're saying about the the meaning behind the album mm-hmm. um your family and friends and i guess um any relatives or, or or people that you know um that are part of the caste system and so on how have they reacted to the it's been a very mi- it's been a strange one actually i've had family members be very like vocal about their disapproval of the album because they talk about caste and racial tension in india being high as it is and why am i stirring the pot even more by bringing it out but the way I see it is, is that we can't really live in we can't really live in this world where like we can't have any nuance and you know a race of people can't be just good or just bad. It's more complicated than that, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, um, I've had loads and loads of support from friends, and I've had loads and loads of support, especially had I've especially had loads of support from uh, Indians living in the West because to them, caste is this thing that's really active in the house, but they leave the, they leave home and then their white pals don't know what it is so they can't bring it up in conversation it's not even that it's taboo it's just it's so emotionally exhausting to bring it up that they don't try and they just kind of suffer in silence and with this album i'm hoping that at least cast gets brought to a platform of discourse where someone can bring up something to do with cast and people might actually know what it is or might have a rudimentary understanding of it i guess yeah we're going to come back to that sure um but let's uh talk about you you've it's quite a, a kind of mixed bag that you've bought today in terms yeah, of the tracks yeah, that yeah, you've yeah, yeah all sorts um so first of all john martin oh he's one of my heroes why john uh when did you discover him and why this song um i chose this song because loads of people kind of like write john martin off as like a 70s folky who had two good albums and then went into obscurity he never got he never got the fame he deserved in his lifetime but I chose a really late period John Martin song just to kind of show off that he was good the whole time he was alive but people don't know and as a promoter as someone who works as a promoter in Scotland music from Scotland having visibility means so much to me as I'm sure it does to yourself and like I wanted to choose somebody who's got a lot of Scottish heritage as well as John Martin does it's from an album called Glasgow Walker as well So sweet, this pain for real. 
Someone who's only heard Solid Air or May You Never, his hits, if they're hits at all, like it doesn't sound like the same guy, but it is. And I wanted to just show that over 25, 30 years that he can progress from a guy with a guitar to so much more. I just got, it was really funny, I didn't really grow up with much Western music in the house, so my best friend from school, Ian, his his parents were very, very into their 70s rock. So whenever I went round to his house, I'd get played all these like these records that would seem really wild and out there to me because I didn't have any context for them. And like some of like a lot of John Martin's 70s output was in there. And we used to sit and listen to him all the time. And like he was still touring at that point. So in about 2008, 2009, I had the, I had the pleasure of seeing him live near the end of his life. And he's a, he's kind of a tragic figure in that a lot of really terrible things happened to him. And he's, he's been a he, to a lot of people, you know, he's he's a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But to me, you know, I'll, I listen to his music regardless of what year it comes from. And I remember being 17 and discovering it for the first time. And to know he was from Scotland meant a lot as well. I think when you listen to a lot of these quote-unquote classic albums, they're always made by people in America or in London. And you think, oh, these people are from like another world. I don't know who they are. But the idea that he grew up in the Shawlands and like he would tour Glasgow. No, he would tour from somewhere random and come back to Glasgow really like. I don't know, it really spoke to me at a point where I didn't think. It's really, it seems really silly to grow up in Glasgow but not be aware of live music. But when you're younger and you're not old enough to go to gigs and stuff yet or like smaller gigs, you almost don't realise how localised the music that you can really fall in love with is, I suppose. So yeah. I guess that's why I chose it. You mentioned there about um, your best friend Ian and listening to the music yeah. that uh, his yeah. parents played. Um, I, I f so what was the music that was being played in your own home? Uh, two things, Bollywood disco and the music of Cliff Richard. But none of like, <laughs> not, not, not even like what people would consider good by Cliff Richard. We're talking about midlife crisis Cliff Richard, so like late 90s onwards. <laughs> there was a VHS of all this stuff that, we used, that my dad would put on all the time. I don't know why I've told you that, but no, now it's, out, it's out there in the world now. So. Uh, and but so Bollywood disco. Yeah, yeah. So it was like there was like a, there was like a weird gap. So it would be like a bunch of like Bollywood discs from like 1978 to like 83. Then it'd be like a massive gap, and then mid 90s onwards, Cliff Richard, and there was nothing in the middle, as no. if my my parents could have ignored anything that happened between that. Ironically, so much of my favourite music comes from the period in between those two yeah. years. But, um, and so the um, when you were listening to music in your friend's house, did that just kind of 
entice you into investigating more yeah yeah for sure it's really funny because loads of people hate dad rock because their dads listen to it but my dad didn't listen to like dad rock so he didn't feel lame or anything or like i didn't need to rebel against it i could just throw myself into it and really really enjoy it um yeah, yeah, yeah. Me, me, like uh, me and that friend Ian, we would listen to so much, so many records together. And there's so if I, th there's like few records from the seventies that I didn't hear for the first time with him in earshot somewhere too. And he, I think he was kind of the same. You know, he didn't feel the need to rebel against music that his parents listened to. And there was a lot of that kind of. You know, we would do. It would be really, it'd be really funny that we'd phone each other up and discuss records that come out come out like thirty years ago and discuss them like they'd just come out and be like, oh, what do you think? And this was before social media and stuff, so yeah. you, you you couldn't just send each other messages. You'd blather on the phone about albums and stuff you liked. So I talk about like I talk about it like it was in the seventies. It was like what two thousand and five <laughs> or something. Um, oh dear. So uh, Joni Mitchell, who's, I mean. It, what can you say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, people always make fun. Oh, it's really funny. There's like a running joke across everywhere I've ever played a gig now. That's not like that's outside of Glasgow. That I'm far too into the music of Steely Dan, who are like not a cool band to like. But and and you know, I'll talk about something like cultural appropriation, but then be like, oh, but you've given Steely Dan a pass. But yeah, but when it sounds that good, you just have to. <laughs> Which isn't a quote people should use, but it's out there now. <laughs> But um, I couldn't decide to I couldn't decide on a song by Joni Mitchell or a song by Steely Dan, so I chose the Joni Mitchell song that reminded me of Steely Dan. Right, a okay. wee bit. But no, this is my this is my favourite song of all time for a short time. It's uh, "Car on a Hill" by Joni Mitchell. Same argument as John Martin. I think a lot of people kind of write her off as like, um, kind of like someone who had like a really good folk, like maybe three, four really good folk albums and then vanished from view. Whereas she kind of discovered jazz after that. And she has this trio of records where she's like, she doesn't really play that much guitar or any acoustic on it, but she's like arranging everything. And you know, there's like, 
this is off an album called Court and Spark, but Hissing of Summer Lawns, this album, Court and Spark and Hijira are like, to me, that's the strongest run of albums ever. And, you know, it's very like, it's not difficult, but it's much more like meandering than a lot of her folky stuff. But I chose this song just because to me, it's got one of the best vocal melodies of all time. But simultaneously, there are so many ideas that sneak past you and you have to listen a few times to find them all. And it's almost like you're going on this, you're almost hunting for what else is she fit what else has she hidden in this song for me to find, I guess? But yeah, I've always been obsessed with this era for work ever since I was a teenager, and I'm always coming back to them because to me, it's almost like the alphabet in terms of songwriting. Like, mm-hmm. I think everything, every good idea someone could have in a song is in there somewhere, and you keep, have to keep coming back to that well, I think, for inspiration. So. The taking of Pelham 123. There's like two people who will be really excited that I chose this. Okay. I hope that This is for those two people. Yeah, this then. is for this is for this is for <laughs> my two good friends from uni who like uh, they played me this for the first time and I can't this was my favourite theme to anything for a long, long time. <laughs> by one of my favourite composers, David Shire. His big film that he did the soundtrack for was uh, The Conversation. It was a Francis Ford Coppola film in the 70s. And um, that film, I don't know why I'm talking about another soundtrack by the same guy, but The Conversation is incredible in that it's got this very, very, very soft piano score throughout. But then later on in the film, the music gets horrifically noisy. But what you're hearing is the tape loops of the really quiet piano track being ripped up and taped back together and then being played. And it's the idea that well before computers had the role that they did in production, that someone was being that wild in the studio with a film soundtrack of all things, but not getting in the way of the film really like... Yeah, I find it really inspiring. Yeah, I'm really, really into my crime thrillers and I find that the music of this specific era of thrillers as well, it was like composers like David Shire and Jerry Fielding and they they were all doing really, really, really interesting things with soundtracks and like um, this particular film, I think it's a great film. Like um, the naming conventions for the, uh, the characters in Reservoir Dogs, they were based on the characters in this film. And uh, before I sang my own songs and things, I was uh, I worked in a theatre company just do, being the in-house composer, so I would do little soundtracks for them. And I, did. I was going to ask you about composing, but I'll let you finish. No, then... no, no, yeah, yeah. And I did music for like short films and things. And yeah. when I got back into music again, it was like, oh, I've got all these ideas from when I was doing soundtracking. And a lot of those have just ended up in my work as a result, I suppose. So I wanted to pick like 
something that kind of referenced that point in my life for soundtrack where working as like someone who did soundtracks was like really pivotal so yeah you were gonna yeah so i mean for me the album is is very much a score it's um the there's it's so clever in in the compositions throughout um the instrumentation i mean we were talking your uh, your partner plays flute on um mm -hmm. tracks and it's just there's um just so many little kind of layers to it um that really comes and it, and now that i kind of understand your, the classical background that you yeah, have and so uh -huh, on uh -huh. then it that really makes me understand it a bit more do, do you would you ever consider um do, have, have you done any more composition for film or anything like no, that it seems lately? like i've kind of gotten head first into just making my own music but yeah. i'd love to return to it at yeah. some point no that would be really fun like i used to do it all the time for this small indie indie theatre company in Glasgow and uh, we've, we we went to London with a production of Merchant of Venice and that was really fun mm -hmm. and that was the last big thing I did for soundtrack and that was a good five six years ago but um, I would come back to it I think I feel like I've grown as a composer since I've been writing my own music yeah. so I'd be interested in doing it but I have like I have like you know this album's part one of like a trilogy so I need to finish those I can't understand why people would struggle with the vocal on that song. We were just talking about that while that was playing. I yeah. think it's so brutal and raw and wonderful. Oh no, it's like um, I, I I discovered them when I was about twenty two or twenty no twenty one twenty two, and I just obsessively had to listen to anything that had his voice in it. And um, yeah, my flatmates didn't go for it much, but. Um, 
Yeah, his voice has a scent, this emotion to it that I don't think anything really matches, to be honest. And there's so many vocals that sound a bit like it, and they're but they're never the same. I think you can always tell when someone's trying to ape it. Yeah, Joan of Arc are like, or sorry, Tim Kinsella in particular is a real hero, I think, and that no one is really doing what he's doing, and no yeah. one's ever done what he's done. And so you, we were talking just about shows in Glasgow and and so on. So you you promote shows. Yeah. How I how many years have you been promoting for now? Uh, four or five. Not yeah. not too long. Not and too what long. was the first gig that you promoted? Um, <laughs> my first few couple of shows was like I tried to put on a show. I wanted to play in a, a show in Edinburgh, but I knew bands in Edinburgh, but I didn't know any promoters, so I decided to put on a show with myself. Yeah. And it was uh, it was myself who played, which is a really big no no when you're a promoter is to put yourself. <laughs> But first show, whatever. Put myself on <laughs> a band called Britney, uh, who were great. Their um, vocalist recorded this album, and he did an amazing job. And uh, a band called Endless Swarm from Edinburgh, who've just put out a new album, I think, who are really great. I'm going to try and see them on their next tour. But yeah, it was them and a band called Fatalists from Edinburgh, who've yeah. been going like a long time. <coughs> a really, really lovely bunch of guys. I'm glad all these bands are still going as well, because there's like a bunch of shows where... It'll be like a timeline thing on Facebook and it'll show you, oh, remember when you put this show on from like three years ago and you look at it and you go, oh my God, none of those bands are active anymore. And oh my God, that venue's not active anymore. And it'll be depressing. So it's like a nice, it's a rare delight, I think, when you're aware of like all the bands from a gig that you put on or played years ago still being active, Mm -hmm. I guess. So yeah, that was my first show that I put on and it went well, so I kept doing it. What's your favourite show that you've ever put on? I I thought about this the other day, like... um, (laughs) <laughs> my favourite show ever, it's another, one of the, it's another one of the songs I chose. My favourite show that I've ever put on was when I put Shilpa Ray on at the 13th note. It's weighing down on me 
my favorite thing about the show was the incompetency of the booking on my part in that like I under I didn't know how many people would come because she played the O2 with Nick Cave I think it was the were you there no like I, I read about this and that is I mean that's mind-blowing yeah, yeah, so. yeah do you know um she told me this story of how Nick Cave like discovered her I don't know if she talked about it. I know, interview. I've not heard this oh, story. Oh, it's, it's incredible. Uh, she worked in a denim factory and, uh, yeah, she'd, like, walked... I think she was working... She had a really bad day at work that day and, like, a pen had burst on her hand and it would, like... Apparently there was a big stain all the way up her sleeve and she was like, this is the worst day ever. And then um, Nick Cave turned up at her work but with his two sons who looked a bit like him but smaller and apparently they were all dressed really similarly and he demanded to speak to her and all three of them walked up to her and said I want you to come on tour with me and the next thing she knew she was on tour with Nick Cave that's insane yeah 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 my favourite part of that story is that his two sons who looked a bit like him were there <laughs> it's just the idea of the three caves coming at you from a distance on your worst day at work it's <laughs> so bizarre but um yeah my favorite show was her at um 13th no and i did not know how i wasn't sure of i should have booked stereo to be brutally honest but in a way maybe i shouldn't have because that show was a capacity yeah. and it was amazing and i wanted to try something with that show and i wanted to see what i could manage with an all women of color lineup so it was uh, her headlining with her band uh, Joyce Delaney, which has loads of you know <laughs> notable Glasgow figures in it. It's got Chrissy Barnacle in it. It's got Nyla in it as well, who's like an academic on comic books, but she also does loads of visibility stuff for yeah. women of color, and she has her own solo stuff, which is fantastic. And uh, a band called Velma, which features uh, Diljit Batcher, who played flute on my record, and Sister who are like a spoken word collective who talk about women of colour and people of colour issues who wow. open. It was mostly Chilperay's kind of fans who came out, but so many people came out. And my favourite thing about that is that she'd clearly not played Glasgow that much since she played with Nick Cave, but she clearly reached so many people that she was that those people all were watching her enough to be like, right, I'm going to come, I'm going to play Glasgow and all these people came out and it's the busiest show I've ever put on, mostly because I put it on in such a small venue, but her, the lead single from her last album, it's a really, really shouty, like very 70s sounding punk rock song and she has such a shouty vocal on it and when she played that song near the end of her set at the at the gig she rushed into the big crowd and was in amongst all of them and they were all dancing and singing and it was like i have a video of it at the, i think it's on my instagram somewhere and it was just it was just incredible to think that i had helped make this happen i was really not to take anything away from the performers it was you know it was her pull and her artistry that brought all these people to the gig but it was really nice to have made that many people happy at once if you want well you're still part of the jigsaw aren't you yeah so. yeah yeah but it's that weird thing where people thank you but i didn't play or anything no but it's, yeah. it's still a big thing to i you you know yourself the work that goes oh, into no, promoting yeah, a show yeah, it is sure. and it's debilitating at times yeah um, but you you keep doing it because you love it. Yeah, yeah, and <laughs> it's really funny when you meet people who don't, they're not, you know, they're not aware of music past the one gig at the Hydra they go to every year kind of thing, and you tell them they're, you're a promoter, and they'll think of, like, some weird, like, 80s rock stereotype that you make, sh like, you make ridiculous amounts of money every night, and yeah. the, you know you go about in limousines and things and like no 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 making a getting my costs back is great but yeah. it doesn't happen often and yeah. it's literally just for the love of doing it that you do and it's i mean it's the same with loads of people i know who do it tm krishna you said that you just recently more relative to the others yeah, yeah really really recently it was more like when i was like we're talking really recently like um i have a good friend who lives in london and she's um i'm from uh, my parents and me are we're both we're all from the south of india and uh, the south of india is quite rarely represented in indian music as a whole a lot of the identity when it comes to indians in diaspora tends to be north indian which is very very different in terms of both its culture and its art and its you know religions and other things too and my friend who lives in london she's south indian and i have so few south indian friends that we became really close really quickly and she recommended tm krishna's music to me and um he's like a karnatic karnatic music is like a south indian specific kind of indian classical music the singers that my cousins who are singers that I talked about earlier in this interview, uh, they're Carnatic singers. And um, TM Krishna is, he's like a political activist and a Carnatic singer. And that combination just like blew me away because, so 
he's also like an upper caste Indian who plays in these very classical, classic, classical music circles that are con like traditionally very elitist and full of really snobby people, you know, who would be casteist in the way that I described in songs like Caustic Wet. And TM Krishna's kind of pushed back, pushed against this narrative by trying to bring Carnatic music to people of a lower class. And he's done the, he's done this in loads of incredible ways. He's tried to create gigs and accessible places that are free of charge for people to attend because so many people live below the poverty line in India that the idea of eating day to day is impossible, let alone going to a gig for the evening. <laughs> He's actually like it's incredible there's all these YouTube videos of him setting up gigs in weirder and weirder places there's this incredible YouTube video where he's on a bus and like there's this bus full of commuters and he's got like a guy playing percussion and like a guy with like a, harmo a small like harmonium creating like a drone and he's just doing vocalizations over it and the way I'm describing it sounds like he's inconveniencing loads of passengers but like everyone's really like enraptured by it and it's incredible that He's gone to this great length and he doesn't have to, do you know what mm -hmm. I mean? He's obviously set for life just off how talented he is, but he's decided that the idea of Carnatic music being an art from closed off to a certain level of class and above is terrible and that more people who aren't able to access it otherwise should be able to. And he's gone to these great lengths to do it as well. He's, um, he's had a lot of pushback, a lot more aggressive pushback than my album's had because I live in the West after all. Yeah. And he lives in India and he's had like, death threats and people picketing his gigs but he takes that risk and he's going to these like public places like you know but like public transport public like little town squares villages he's going to these places and he's trying to bring this music to people and i think that's really inspiring and that you know it's even more it's like tenfold when he's not in the west he's not just doing it removed from the 
cruelties of the situation. He's doing it in a place where he he's risking real bodily harm here to do this. So mm -hmm. he's a very recent obsession of mine that my friend Ananya just like uh, introduced me to. And I'm really thankful that there's other people singing about cast and are doing these great things on like because he's on a really mainstream platform as well. But in a lot of elite music circles and a lot of people are turning up their nose at the idea that he's singing to poor folk. But the fact that he's doing that and he doesn't care what they think is incredible, I think. Yeah. And I just had to include him on this list. For no, that's that fascinating. Yeah. Um, so your album's out now, yep. Sacred Boar. Yeah. Um, well, the album launch gigs are after that. The album comes out on vinyl on the 14th of December. I play Leith Depot in Edinburgh that day and I haven't played Glasgow in a wee while. So I'm playing the album. The album launch or the vinyl launch was on the 15th of December at the Hug and Pint in the West End. So play Glasgow and then I've already started working on the second record. So there's going to be a wee writing period during that point but during that time I'm just going to go back to promoting a lot to be honest so yeah. I'm not going to vanish don't worry and have you picked your supports for the shows in Scotland yeah yeah I'll be announcing them very shortly but um to a lot of people who've seen me play before and who know me personally the supports won't come as any yeah. surprise but like no I'm looking forward to announcing them really really soon um, it's a beautiful body of work. I cannot wait to get the vinyl. Um, that means a lot. Thanks so no, much. No, no, um, means so much. I, I, like I say, there's so many different layers to it. And obviously, the now that you've explained the... I mean, I know you've done interviews and things like that and um, in, in depth in terms of what you do, but mm -hmm. it's just nice to hear it from you direct, yeah, for sure. I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and you expressing it in your own way. I yeah, think when yeah. you hear someone just expressing it with their own voice yeah, it yeah, makes yeah. it then rather than reading um someone else's words um i wish you all the best with this that means i so know much. how so much. fucking hard you work so <laughs> i think if you um, don't believe in it other people won't believe in yeah. it so you have to just kind of go as hard as you want as you can I but you support so many other musicians as well and you go to so many gigs i think so. it's important though you kind of have to be the change you want yeah. to see because i feel like you can complain about the kinds of bands you like not being successful, but if you're not in the audience watching them, they're not going to be successful. You yeah. know, like you can't, there's no way to make, you have, you can't put loads of people there. You've kind of got to be one of them first. I yeah. Guess. yeah. Good luck. Thank you so much for coming in to speak no, to no, me. No, no, anytime. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. <laughs>
This effigy of my trust Starting to feel like I wouldn't amount to much When it encompasses everything I hold up forever granted Eyes that only grow tall with each passing day Parallel the extent to which I would stray from What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 